You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hey, there's, a, there's an author named Margaret Feinberg, and um, she, she has this, this belief that every pastor, I'm not a pastor, uh, but every pastor has in essence, three or four sermons that they just keep repeating over and over again, themes that they find a way to return to in some way or another. Now, I'm a teacher, and uh, I suspect that our other professors here, I suspect that you might have some of those themes. Well, I, I just want to say one of those themes for me is, is what we're talking about today, desire and this idea that you are what you love. And so, normally when I'm putting a, a chapel talk together, it's how you accumulate the right information. But my struggle today was making sure that, uh, or, or knowing what to omit. <laughs> there's, there's so much I want to say, so hopefully this is coherent. And I will share a few things that I've shared before, that you've heard me say before, but I think it bears repeating. So I want to I open by talking about an exchange between St. Augustine and this guy named Avodius in a very popular book called On Free Choice of the Will. Very, very important book. And they're, they're talking about morality, and Augustine says to Avodius, give me an example of an evil act. And Avodius names several things, murder, sacrilege, adultery. And then Augustine says, okay, adultery. Tell me, Avodius, what is morally objectionable about adultery? What's wrong with adultery? And Avodius says, well, I'll tell you what's wrong with adultery. It's kind of like the golden rule. I wouldn't want someone to sleep with my spouse. Therefore, I shouldn't sleep with someone else's spouse. That would be evil. But then Augustine says, yes, but we know people whose lust is so great, they would be more than happy to offer up their spouse to someone else and more than happy to accept the spouse of someone else as well. Therefore, based on your golden rule, that act would not be evil. Well, then Avodius says, okay, uh, well, I know some people who uh, have, have been charged with a crime who have committed adultery. And Augustine says, yes, but we know people who have been charged with crimes who actually were good people. And he mentions martyrs, the disciples. He mentions Jesus. And then finally, Evodius says, I don't know, Augustine. I don't, I don't know how to say what's wrong with adultery. And Augustine says this, then perhaps what makes adultery evil is inordinate desire, disordered desire. Whereas so long as you look for evil in the external visible act, you're bound to encounter difficulties. In order to understand that inordinate desire is what makes adultery evil, consider this. If a person is unable to sleep with someone else's spouse, but it is somehow clear that they would like to and would do so if they had the chance, they are no less guilty than if they were caught in the act. So the conclusion here is that all external acts of evil have an internal origin, and that is a disordered love. 
loving the wrong thing. And this is very reminiscent, right, of, of Jesus in the Beatitudes, where he's like, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. In other words, Jesus was communicating that it's not just the action of the hand, but it's the intent of the heart that establishes the moral significance of an action. It wasn't just following the law, but the spirit within us that Christ was concerned with. So here's why, here's why this is important, that you and I talk about desire as Christians. Again, I could say a lot. I was trying to make sure I, I said just what needed to be said. First, the Christian faith tradition has a very particular way of thinking about desire. Now, I taught economics here at Asbury. I love, I love the discipline. I love economics. I love its explanatory power. I think there's a lot of good in that. But there's, there's a curious assumption within the, the microeconomic discipline, and that is if people can have their desires satisfied, if you create the conditions where their preferences can be met, you make them better off. You, en you enhance their utility. Now, I, I actually think that's a relatively accurate statement, but I think it's very problematic when we take a close look at it. The authors, Robert and Edward Skidelsky, I think put it well. They said, economists are all for the satisfaction of wants, but as to the nature of those wants themselves, they remain fastidiously indifferent. <laughs> So much more can be said, but embedded in, in our bundle of modern assumptions is first that freedom, freedom for you and I, is simply the expansion of choice. And, and choice creates value. In other words, something is valuable because I choose it, not the other way around. Something is chosen because it's valuable. Does that make sense? So classical Christian doctrine has a different way of understanding freedom and the related idea of choice. So there's a great quote by Rodney Clapp, and he says, For Christian spirituality, desire can never be considered apart from its object. A desire is known as good or evil only when we take account of what is desired, the object of desire. In other words, choice doesn't create value. Choice should respond to value. Does that make sense? Let me give a, a humorous example of this. How many of you have ever seen the movie Three Amigos? It's a great movie. It's late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and classical comedians, Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, and Martin Short. And the Amigos are all under the illusion that they've come into great wealth. And so prior to going to bed one evening, one of them says, what are you going to do with, with your share of the money? And Chevy Chase says, or Steve Martin says, a car, a big shiny car, a silver car. I'm going to drive all around Hollywood. What about you? Chevy Chase says, New York, maybe Paris, a lot of champagne, parties. I'll be a big shot for a while. And what about you, Ned? Ned is Martin Short. He says, I'm going to start a foundation to help homeless children. As you can imagine, they're embarrassed, uh, Chevy Chase and Steve Martin, and then their own kind of comedic way. They're like, well, yes, of course. I, I, I actually was planning to do that after I got the car, or yeah, I was going to do that first and then travel. Here's the, here's the point that the scene makes, and it's something that you and I intuitively know 
Not all preferences, not all desires, and not all aims are created equally. Human welfare and flourishing are not simply a matter of having our various preferences satisfied. It's a matter of desiring well. This is tied in to our flourishing as humans. In other words, the good life is not about satisfying our idiosyncratic desires. It's about identifying and pursuing the proper end of desire. Desire is meant for the truly desirable. If you desire something good, it's a good desire. If you desire something evil, it is a disordered desire. This was Augustine's point to Evodius. Recall his description of evil's origin, disordered love, loving the wrong things. That doesn't mean that we have no love or that we have no desire. That would be impossible. Again, disordered desire is aiming our love toward the wrong thing. And if if disordered love is the essence of sin, then its opposite is the essence of virtue and holiness and moral excellence. Ordered love. In his massive book, The City of God, St. Augustine says, It is the brief but true definition of virtue that it is the order of love, ordinate affections, loving what is truly lovely, pursuing that which is truly worthy of our pursuit, desiring that which is truly desirable. So, this is the first reason why desire is so important in Christianity. Because the origin of sin is disordered love, and the essence of holiness is ordered love. Let me mention a second reason. And I'm going to talk a bit about my story growing up briefly. And so I I was told a story probably similar to a story you were told in the church. And that is there's a gap between myself and God— And Jesus is the bridge to fill that gap. But here's the important point of what I heard. As long as I believed in my mind that Jesus is Lord, and as long as I uttered with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, I would be saved. In other words, a different way of saying it is this. My eternal destiny was secured with the faculties above my neck. (laughs) What do I believe with my mind and utter with my mouth? Now, let me make an important point. When I talk about belief, I I mean um, assenting to a set of intellectual propositions. As long as I just A, B, C, I believe those, I utter those, I'm in. And further, once I get to heaven, I I would be kind of... um, zapped with with this holiness laser where all of my unsavory affections, all of my disordered loves would be magically transformed and, and I would be heavenly. But we know that the fullness of our Christian faith does not reside above our neck. And thanks to a long line of incredible thinkers throughout the centuries, we know the center of gravity for a person of faith is our heart. Remember what I said a week ago, uh, that worship, what does worship mean? It means ascribing value. We are always worshiping. We're always worshiping. I was just talking to a group of faculty about a, a quote, Garth Greenwell. He's an author. And in an interview, he said, I've always been possessed by a devotional temperament with no bearable object of devotion. 
What a great quote. And I love that quote because he didn't say, I have always possessed. He said, I've always been possessed. Uh, in other words, he doesn't have a, a, a devotional temperament. It has him. We have a devotional temperament. And importantly, love is not something we do so much at, as it is something that we suffer. We cannot not love. Aquinas says, all action takes place from love of some kind. Augustine said, love is like a kind of motion, and all motion is toward something. So what are you and I motioning towards? What are we orienting our life around? What do we desire? What do we worship? What do we seek is ultimate? And what is shaping and feeding and directing that desire? Let me repeat again the quote I gave last week by Phil Kinnison. He said, every human life is an embodied argument about what things are worth doing, who or what is worthy of attention, who or what is worthy of allegiance and sacrifice, and what projects, projects or endeavors are worthy of human energies. In short, every human life is bent toward something. Every human life is an act of worship. Now, let me say one more thing about this before I kind of turn the corner. To go back to Augustine again, in his book, Confessions, he has this famous quote, my weight is my love. And what he was saying was, a rock's weight will make it roll down a hill and settle somewhere. And the weight of a fire will make it rise towards the sky. In other words, something goes where its weight takes it. And thus, Augustine says, my weight, your weight, is our love. We go, we follow our loves. Later this semester, Steve Deneff will be here. And he has said before, desire is, is like a riptide. Everything starts to follow what you love. So there are a few important things here. A stone has no say about how it rolls down that hill. But as humans, we can direct our love towards things as an act of the will. Augustine calls this voluntas, something like a movement of the will or a movement of the soul toward something. And Augustine believed that the soul is conformed to that which it loves. So if a soul loves insubstantial Disordered things, we will become shadowy and disordered. We will become subhuman. And if a soul loves elevated eternal things, we will become heavenly. In short, we are what we love. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus around that time says, you become what you attend to, what you give yourself to. That's what you're becoming. So here's a thought. Here's a thought. If virtue is ordered love, and if we are at our core lovers, not just thinkers, lovers, not just I think, therefore I am, but I love, therefore I am. I desire, I am oriented, I, I am pulled, I am tilted, I am bent. 
And if we can shape and foster and direct our love, and if our soul conforms to what we love, and if our Christian faith is not simply about what I believe with my mind and about what I utter with my mouth, again, the faculties above my neck, but also about the tilt of my heart, then there is an eternal dimension to this entire conversation. So here's a question for you. Don't miss this. What if, Asbury, what if one day you and I will stand before God, but when we do, God won't say, what do you believe? He'll say, what do you want? What if you stand before God one day and he won't simply say, what do you believe? He'll say, what do you want? You and I, we will love our way into eternity. But the nature of that eternity will be characterized by the nature of our love. This was the profound, profound idea behind C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Everyone should read that. And in The Great Divorce, Lewis is raising the point that maybe God does not condemn us to hell or allow us into heaven so much as he obliges our preference for one destination or the other. That maybe God seconds our motion, that hell's doors are locked from the inside. There's a paraphrase in that, or I'm paraphrasing him, where there are two types of people, Lewis says, those who say, Lord, thy will be done, and those who don't. And God says, all right, your will be done. We often think of hell as a punishment we deserve. Lewis raised the question, what if hell is a destination we might prefer? This was raised in the book uh, Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl, N.D. Wilson, and he describes a, a dinner party uh, with professors and students, and at a table, there's a, a student, she's an atheist, and at her table is her Protestant professor, and she wants to play with him a little bit, and she says, hey, do you think I'm going to hell? He quickly responded, don't you want to? This puzzled her. She said, what are you talking about? And he said, God is who he is. Do you want him? The question is equally relevant to us today. Eternity is not simply a matter of what we believe. It's a matter of what we want. Do we desire participation in the life of God? Do we love the things God loves? Or are we idolaters? And let me define that. There are different ways of thinking about idolatry. One is transferring our love for God to transient things. Transferring the love of God to transient things. The other is associating our love for transient things with God. A.W. Tozer says, idolatry is simply imagining things about God and pretending they're true. So here's another way of putting it. Will heaven be familiar to me based upon what I love? And I've raised these questions before. Let me raise them again. Consider this. If, if I have contempt for those around me, if I think that hell is other people, uh, as, as Sartre 
famously said in his play, No Exit. If I worship myself, if my life is oriented to idols outside of God, money, sex, prestige, power, pleasure, if I'm constantly suspicious, if I'm divisive, if I'm mistrustful, if I hoard my resources, if I view freedom as merely being unconstrained, a lack of commitment, a lack of obligation, a lack of responsibility, if I valorize autonomy and control, if I instrumentalize others, if people are obstacles and threats to me, if I'm xenophobic, if I'm racist, if I don't like being around people who have different colored skin than me, if these practices and these desires and these sensibilities are habituated into my daily life, then the question of whether you get into heaven is far less relevant than the question, do you even want to be there? What do you want? What do I want? John Wesley says, love accompanies us to and adorns us in eternity. Eternity, it prepares us for and it constitutes heaven. So what do you love? I know what you believe. I'm pretty sure I know what you believe. What do you love? What do you want? And let me just say, this is a significant part of why we're here at Asbury, why your professors, why your coaches, why your staff is here. The formation of the full person. A student's mind? Absolutely. Absolutely. We want you to be mature intellectual thinkers. A student's hands? Yes. Refining your skills so that you can effectively serve. But a student's heart? We say this here, deep thought, effective service, ordered love, holistic practice. That's it. That's the end game. And this education is more than just knowing. C.S. Lewis said the purpose of education, he was quoting Aristotle, is to make the pupil want what they ought. C.E. Stanley Jones, one of our more famous alumni, great quote, he says, as someone has said, education is given spokes to the wheel, but no hub. It is given nothing that binds life into central meaning and integration. At the end of a college course, the real question is not what you know, says Jones, it's what you love. So I opened talking about my belief, uh, about the belief that my Christianity, my eternity was secured with, with the faculties above my neck. And when I discovered this holistic, formative, heart-centered way of thinking about faith, it opened up an entirely new corridor for me as a Christian. And it raised some new questions. And I, I want to I offer humbly <laughs> those questions to you as well. So what if eternity is not just about what I believe, it's about what I want? Not simply what I propositionally affirm in my mind and, and utter with my mouth, but what my heart is tilted towards. What if God doesn't cast us into hell or permit our passage into heaven so much as he obliges our preference for either place? What if heaven is, is not then? What if it's now? Emily Dickinson said, who has not found the heaven below? will fail of it above. God's residence is next to mine. His furniture is love. Who has not found the heaven below will fail of it above. What if heaven is right now? And, and what if heaven is not there? What if heaven is here? 
In other words, holiness, we say, is not a requirement for heaven. It is the environment of heaven. It's not a condition. It's the condition. We have it right outside on Hughes. Hebrews 12, 14, live at peace with all men and the holiness without which no man shall see God. That we're cultivating heavenly and holy sensibilities right now so that heaven is familiar to us. And finally, what if we centered the life of our church and Christianity not simply around our beliefs, but around our desires? Hey, let me close. I've told a story before. I don't know if I've said it here in chapel. If I did, I apologize. I said to Maria once, I was like, I repeat myself a lot, don't I? And she's like, yes, you do, uh, very politely. When Maria and I were in college, uh, we, we had a disagreement while we were dating. And I'll just go ahead and tell you what it is. I've, I'm not sure what this is before, but it, uh, it related to a friend of mine and it related to the issue of drinking, drinking alcohol. And um, I was taking the more permissive view and the argument at that time. So we're going back and forth. We're having this, this argument. And finally, Maria said something that really stopped me dead in my tracks. She said, when you're making this argument, are you trying to get as close to God as possible? Or are you trying to get as close to the world as allowable? Are you trying to get as close to God as possible or as close to the world as allowable? She cut through my argumentation and rationale, uh, the masquerade I was putting on, if you will, and she went straight to the tilt of my heart. She went straight to, forget all this, what you believe. What do you love? What do you want? I was challenged by that question. I know what we all believe. I know what you believe. What do we want? Asbury is a place for our students to belong, to become, our theme this semester, and to be set apart. And when we say that, we say there are four dimensions, deep thought, effective service, ordered love, holistic practice. Hey, can I just end on two encouraging notes? I'm encouraged by this. I, I hope you are as well. First and foremost, God is for us. God is for us. What do we want is a legitimate question. What God wants, that question's settled. He wants us. He wants communion with you and I. I love this, uh, Jesus talking in Matthew 23, 37. I got to go to Israel this summer and uh, just to, to be in a place where I could stare at the temple and imagine Jesus saying these words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Hear Christ's words, how often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. But what Jesus is saying is, I am willing. I am willing. How often I've desired to gather you. I am willing. God is for us. Hannah Whittall Smith says, God wants to give you the keys to the kingdom more than you want to have it. That's good and that's encouraging news. Second, rightly ordered affections isn't just about getting into heaven or doing what you're supposed to do and saying what you're supposed to say because you're a Christian. In Luke 10, uh, where, where the lawyer asked Jesus about eternal life, right? And Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer repeats the Shema. And what does Jesus say after that? You have given the right answer. Do this and you will 
live. That's a very important statement. You will live. It reminds me of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have appetites for godly things. They're the ones who leave the dinner table filled, satisfied. I was just talking with Dr. Pinkston uh, about uh, an old Death Cab for Cutie song uh, and a brilliant opening line. I have a hunger twisting my stomach into knots that my tongue has tied off. I have this hunger that I need to fill, but I can't seem to satisfy it. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have a hunger for godly things. They are satisfied. One of the best summary descriptions of Matthew 6 in the Sermons on the Mount comes from John Wesley. I love this. He said, it's as if Jesus is saying, behold, I show you the things for which your soul longeth for. See the way you have long sought in vain, the way of pleasantness, the path to calm, joyous peace to heaven below and heaven above. This is what Augustine was saying in Confessions. Lord, you have made us for yourself and restless are our hearts until they find their rest in thee. This is Jesus in John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty. You will be satisfied. You will live. I will give you the things that your soul longs for. You will be filled. You'll never be hungry. You'll never be thirsty. Shalom, flourishing, fulfillment, significance, meaning. You will live. That is a beautiful vision. And when I was your age and heard that message, and I, I, when, I, when I say that this is something I'm passionate about, is because I remember a 20-year-old Kevin Brown that needed to hear that. That, that my desires are disordered, and moreover, that they could be satisfied, that my tongue hadn't tied off this hunger that's burning within me. I needed someone to say, you will live, and Jesus said that to me. It's a privilege being in this community with you, and there's a lot we do here, a lot we do, but this, this, is, my, this is my deep desire, is that our work influences every dimension of our personhood. Our head, absolutely, yes. We're a university. Our hands, the effective service that we have, but it's the tilt of our hearts that makes us different. I was sharing with our athletes yesterday uh, for a special ceremony, and I just said there is no greater compliment, no greater compliment to me that I can hear about our students than they're different. They're set apart. Their character, their effectiveness, their engagement, their hospitality, their compassion, their heart. That's the end game because we become what we love.